You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. So now what? Well, you can join me, Pastor Allen, and my colleague, Pastor Carissa, as we explore the spaces between the Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to Soft Idolatry. We are in year C right now. We've been following through the thread in First and Second Timothy from the lectionary. And uh, we're going to be moving on in our third of this section today. Alan, before we get started, what are you reading right now? Well, I just finished Searching for Sunday, and it was excellent. I recommend it to anyone, though, uh, as I decided to read it because I thought it might make for a good study that was a little bit less academic, but... For someone who was not an academic, Rachel Held Evans can get pretty academic at times. Yeah, she certainly could. So uh, I finished that, and I am now reading The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a crime novel set in Boston in 1970, I think, and it was one of Anthony Bourdain's favorite books. Oh, excellent. A little bit of a uh, genre shift there, though. Exactly. (laughs) A a, a much-needed genre shift. I'm going to need a genre shift soon. I am currently just reading a load of commentaries on the Gospel of Luke because Luke is in the lectionary right now, and I'm also beginning a midweek Bible study this week uh, going through the Gospel of Luke. We're actually not going to go through Luke in order. We're going to start with chapter 3, go to the end, and then come back to chapters 1 and 2 because that's going to hit right during Advent. Advent. Yeah, so... Um, so I'm just reading a bunch of commentaries on Luke. Very exciting. Very academic. To, to, yes. Tell me what it means when you're done. I doubt I'll be able to, but I can certainly try. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a particular commentary that you are working with or liking best? Uh, word biblical commentaries. Usually the first one that I go to, I also like I Anchor Yale. And I'll probably go to N.T. Wright's. New Testament for Everyone series as well. I find that that one's, after you've read all the academic things, he's got a great way of summing things up in a way that matters in the here and now. Gotcha. So what what was your sermon title yesterday? You can't take it with you. Okay. How about yours? I'm not preaching. That's a dumb title. It's not a title. It was the truth. I wasn't preaching yesterday. Correct. We actually hung out. (laughs) We did hang out. I came into Pittsburgh for your installation. Correct. And for those listeners who are not Presbyterian and or are not clergy, um, an installation is kind of a big deal. Uh, Not as big a deal as an ordination, but it's still a big moment in the life of a congregation. It generally happens when a pastor begins their journey with a congregation, but I have been, technically speaking, temporary supply, which is a contracted position, because of the unusual nature of the partnership between these two congregations. But we've been doing this for almost three years now. The congregations love each other. I love them. I'd like to think that they're pretty fond of me as well, and so we're making this a long-term partnership and position so that there's a big celebration that goes along with that. Yeah, installation is a qualitatively different pastoral relationship with a congregation. It it is functionally it's like being a tenured professor 
I am installed in my pastorate, though I had done, I had served as an interim pastor prior to that, which is the same contractual relationship that Carissa had with her two congregations. But it means that I am going to be here for the long haul as long as it's good for my congregation and as long as it's good for me. And the same can be said for Carissa. As long as her relationship is fruitful with both congregations, they will remain in that relationship. I just totally, I, yeah, that's a great summary. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. Uh, oh, I remembered what I was going to say. Um, and it was, a, it was fun for me to come and take part in your installation last year. When you moved out to New Jersey, I got to roast, I mean, preach at the installation. And uh, it's, it's a time where you can have friends and colleagues participate in that as well as a sign of their affirmation of your ministry journey. It was a tremendously special day for me when we did that. And, and of course, it was, it was fun not only listening to Carissa tease me, but knowing that uh, Carissa, the overachiever that she is, <laughs> The, the one who was first ordained out of our group, I, I got to be installed before her. <laughs> well done, buddy. <laughs> I'm not sure what you want from that. <laughs> Some other time I'll tell you about how, how I beat my cousin who went to Harvard at Words with Friends all the time. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. So with that little uh, lesson about the life of what it's like to be a Presbyterian Church USA clergy member, uh, you have no supporting text this week uh, because you are not preaching. I am not preaching, but I would probably be using the gospel story. I would have used the gospel story had I been preaching. Yeah, and that's the passage that I'm going with as well. I've been using the Lucan passages to back up the First Timothy passages, and I'm beginning this Luke Bible study, so I am getting immersed in that gospel anyway. This is another weird parable, though, and so I think I'll read this Luke passage, and then, Alan, if you can read our primary text today, the First Timothy text, and then we'll launch into the meat of our discussion. Sure. So the Luke passage this week is from Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Translation. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, 
Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Before I read mine, what is it that you find so weird about this story? Well, I mean, you've got like dead people talking to each other between heaven and hell and uh, this strange idea of uh, like reverse reward and punishment. Like you get good stuff now and bad stuff later or bad stuff now and good stuff later. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of working parts in this one and it's really hard um, both culturally and narratively to kind of work through all of that. Yeah, and I would also add that the words heaven and hell don't appear there. We just kind of naturally go to those descriptions. And when we do that, it becomes less parabolic and more um, more a story that we tame by putting it into categories we recognize. Right, yeah. So our other text, our principal text, is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we have brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and to which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I like how this passage 
dovetails with the one from Luke. Because like we mentioned, that one in Luke almost feels like it says, if you have now, you're going to hell. You're going to burn in eternal torment. But this passage here does not say that it is inherently immoral to have what you need or even more than you need. It's about the way that you carry it and deal with it. So this is consistent with Jesus' messaging in the Gospel of Luke. But the letter writer in 1 Timothy does not have the level of distrust for money and wealth that Luke's Jesus has. Right. He even says money, it can be a root of many evils. So a lot of people say they misquote this and say money is the root of all evil, but this says that money is the root of many evils. Yes. Yes. Um, And, and you know, we should probably throw in a link to John Wesley's sermon on the proper uses of wealth. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great one. You want to summarize? (laughs) Well, basically, Wesley says, give away every penny that you can. Um, It's fine to, to have wealth. It's fine to have money as long as you put it in the service of the Lord, as long as you put it to work for godly causes. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, it, it's okay to um, have a decent house, but how are you using it? And we even talked about this during the Ten Commandments and idolatry as well. Yes, and, and the allegory of the man cave. Right, right. So if you haven't uh, heard that one yet, go back to our idolatry uh, podcast from the Ten Commandments series. So it's all right to be an employer of people, to be the boss, to be the manager, but are you a kind and goodly employer that is paying a fair wage, et cetera? Right. And, you know, the, the temptation with money is always to squeeze out a few extra pennies from every transaction or every relationship. So, oh, my housekeeper doesn't deserve to be paid $15 an hour. She didn't go to college. I think $12 an hour is a reasonable wage for her. Well, you know, if you have the money for a housekeeper and you can afford the $15 an hour wage, deserve has nothing to do with it. Her bills are the same whether you pay her fairly or not. Exactly. Exactly. Our culture loves money and gain. We're going to try to squeeze a dime out of anything and everything we can. So we're going to use every little coupon. We're going to argue and haggle about everything. Um, If there's the slightest thing wrong with a meal, we're going to send it back. And we have television shows celebrating this. I grew up in the 80s when a staple of Saturday TV was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yeah, and we still have shows like that today, right? Like there's those, I've never seen one, but like those Desperate Housewives shows that are about like the The rich... Real Housewives. Thank shows. you. What did I say? Desperate Housewives. Yeah, I don't. That, that's I've, a scripted drama, but yes. Okay, I've never <laughs> watched any of them, but I know there are shows, right? And people, you know, follow people on Instagram who their only fame is because they're rich, right? There's the celebrity of wealth. Yes. We and influencers. Yeah, I the can't influencers. Forget the influencers. And we like to say with our words that money doesn't buy happiness, but that is not how we operate. That's not what our culture upholds. 
No. How how much did I celebrate my new car when I bought it a year and a half ago? Uh, very much. How much did you celebrate your new car when you got it, what, a year ago? Uh, I think it was about two years ago. But yeah, two we were very ago. thrilled yeah. about it. <laughs> and, and, and of course, as good Scottish Presbyterians, part of what we celebrated was the deals that we got on our cars and how much money we saved. We definitely had those conversations, too. <laughs> yes, that is very true. That is very true. So we are obsessed with it. We, we okay, I won't speak for you. Our culture is obsessed with money. I am minorly obsessed with money, maybe because I didn't, my parents didn't have much of it when I was growing up, but it's just always something we notice because we are culturally conditioned to notice it. Well, and how often, this is, tends to be a thing more that, that women do, but if someone compliments you on your new shoes or a new item of clothing that you're wearing, often the first thing that will come out of someone's mouth is, oh yeah, I got a really great deal on it. <laughs> and I yes. do this all the time, right? Someone will say, that's a great jacket. I'll be like, I know I got 30% off on it, right? We just love the idea that we got it for less because then we have more for something else. Yeah. Uh my buddies and I from the cigar shop will also talk about the deals we got ordering cigars online. And you frequently send me text messages about which uh, whiskeys are on sale at the Wine and Spirits. Yes, correct. <laughs> because we would hate for a friend to miss out on a good deal and an opportunity to save money. Exactly. $7 off a bottle of Glenlivet. Right, right. Uh, there's a really fascinating Hidden Brain episode. Have you listened to that podcast before? I have. I, I don't usually go out of my way, but if I'm in the car and it's on, I'm always glad that I heard it. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. And there's a great one on what they call the scarcity trap. And it essentially means if there is something we don't have that we need, we literally become obsessed with it. Our brain cannot make space for other concerns. And so it's one of the ways that people can get stuck in the poverty cycle when you are struggling to make enough money to pay your rent every single month and to keep the utilities on, your brain literally cannot fathom things like budgeting or searching for a different job or going to school. Like you're literally in survival mode and your brain is stuck there. Um, and so it's almost the other side of the wealth coin where if you have too much money, you're worshiping it. And if you have too little, you psychologically can't avoid it. Did they talk about cortisol during that discussion? I don't remember. It's been a while since I listened to the entire episode, but I'm going to post a link on the show notes and I'm probably going to be listening to that again this week. Yeah, please do. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, cortisol is a stress hormone and it also affects memory. And so I could see how the the lack of wealth and the awareness of that would just create a feedback loop that makes it really, really difficult to see anything else, including a way out of the position that you're currently in. More on that later. Yeah. And shame on those. Well, I, that's maybe too strong of a terminology, but um, it, it really calls us out when we say things like, um, well, they just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps or they're not trying hard enough or why don't they this or why don't they that? Many right. people literally cannot. Right, right. It, it is, 
it is exceedingly difficult when you are caught in that poverty trap to see a different reality or a way out. And as I said, more on this later when we get into the story from Luke. Yeah. And this does also um, come around to the couple of verses that are before this passage in First Timothy. So this passage that we just read comes right after another relatively contentious passage from First Timothy. This is um, 6 verses 1 through 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regain or regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Uh, let's break this down a little bit. This has often been used to condone slavery. Yes, we do need to to observe a a note of caution with all of this. Um, we are we are wandering into my own personal thoughts on Paul here, but I think Paul, and of course we're arguing that this is not authentically Pauline, but Paul believed that the second coming was right around the corner, so his focus seemed to be more on internal spirituality than changing structures that were perhaps, um, not perhaps, his, his focus was not on changing structures of oppression. So changing gender relationships, changing slavery. Uh, on the flip side, we have to remember too that Slavery in the New Testament is very different from American chattel slavery as was practiced in this country before the Civil War. In chattel slavery, a person becomes a piece of property, and any of the children that that enslaved person has are also born into slavery and are also considered property. The the Persons who are enslaved can only be set free by the master, but they are essentially just strong backs and hands to do agricultural labor on the plantations. The slavery that we encounter in the New Testament was debt slavery, and there were lots of laws that uh, regulated how slaves were treated by masters. Slaves could be educated. Uh, some of them were very important as senior level managers to wealthy and powerful people in the Greco-Roman world. Slaves could acquire property. They could acquire wealth themselves and possibly earn enough money to repay whatever debt brought them into slavery in the first place. Also, if a slave had children, those children were not born into slavery. So the slaves were absolutely not human property, human chattels in this period in biblical history. And Wright actually has some interesting things to say about this as well. Uh, this, I'm going to read a little bit from page 67 of his Paul for Everyone, the Pastoral Letters. There's a link in the show notes from, I believe, our first week in this series, which is just a couple weeks ago. You can go back and find that. 
He says, you only have to press the button marked slavery to provoke a strong negative reaction. We all know it's wrong, though there are, in fact, many forms of virtual slavery around the world today where people cannot escape dead-end, low-paid jobs or make them more bearable. We all value freedom, though we don't always know exactly what it is, how it works, or what to do to maintain it. And because the only thing we have to say about slavery is it's wrong, we cannot believe that the early Christians didn't have the same reaction. The answer is, of course, that many of them did. But in Paul's day, slaves formed up to one-third of the population. Most free families, except the very poor, owned at least one or two of them. De declaring grandly that you were opposed to the whole system would achieve about as much as someone today standing up in church and announcing that they were opposed to the use of oil-based products and therefore regarded cars, planes, and motorized boats as unchristian. What the early Christians did with Paul at their head was to declare that masters and slaves were in fact equal before God and to treat both alike as possessing individual responsibility before God. And it goes on, but I just really like that whole that whole chapter. Yeah, I think that's a really important bit of background knowledge. And I think it also reminds me as a clergy person and also as someone who has studied a lot of history, how little I actually know about the ancient world. We project our own understanding of our current world backwards onto these stories. But man, there is just so much we don't know about what daily life looked like in the Greco-Roman world, about social codes, about how people related to one another. We have little tiny fragments that have survived for 2,000 years, and we have to extrapolate from that. But there is just so much we don't know. There is so much subtext to all of these Bible stories that we don't appreciate because that world is so far behind us. Yeah, reading the Bible is hard work. Or <laughs> rather, reading the Bible responsibly is hard work. Yes. So um, one of the things that I found really, really interesting in the Luke text, and this is this is where these two touch, I think, uh, is, these two touch on the proper use of money, of course. But verse 26, uh, when he speaks, uh, when, when Abraham says to the rich man, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And, and no one can cross from there to us. And I think this mirrors the separation between rich and poor in the ancient world and also in our times. And while this might not be an absolute condemnation of wealth, it's a cautionary tale. Mm. And it shows us just how separated we are from one another by our wealth. And that gap is becoming increasingly large too. It is. And as I think about that, I am reminded of the Confession of Belar, which is the most recent addition to the Book of Confessions in the Presbyterian Church. The Confession of Belar comes out of South Africa at the height of the old apartheid system of racial segregation. And that confessional statement says that separation is sin. And 
I think that we are so obsessed with wealth. We make an idol of money, though we don't realize it, and we try to claim that it is not an idol. But what happens is it separates us from one another, and we fail to live into the radical egalitarianism that we hear in other parts of Paul's letter. In Christ, there is no slave or free, no Jew or Greek, no male or female. But in our world, there's a lot of rich and poor, and we really don't associate with one another across that divide. So what then does this mean for our identity in Christ? We said at the beginning of this section that we were going to be looking at that thread of identity in Christ. I think what it means for us is that we have to engage more. We have to work to cross those chasms, to bridge those chasms between rich and poor. I think that following what Wesley says about the proper use of wealth, we have to give everything we can, but we have to expand our definition of wealth. Um, wealth in terms of time, in terms of intellect, in terms of relationship. We have to put ourselves in places where we get to know people who aren't like us. Yeah. Um, and that's really hard to do. That's not easy. No, because everything we do, we, we, we unintentionally, mostly unintentionally, structure our lives so that we are in silos with people like us. We live in communities that are segregated economically. We go to churches where most of the people hold similar levels of wealth and political opinions. And, it and race. Really, and yes, and race. And so that really, that, that, that turns us into functional only children where we exist inside our own heads without ever checking our perceptions with people outside of our own heads. Yeah. Sorry, speaking from personal experience as an only child here. <laughs> You're such an only child. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm such an oldest child. Yes. How can I be anything but an only child? <laughs> yeah, no comment. So <laughs> you said something interesting earlier in the week when we were talking, and now I don't remember where you said you got it from, but you had pulled out that very last verse of the passage in Luke. And uh, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Yeah, I you know, here here is here is Jesus foreshadowing his own resurrection. And uh I I I think in literature this is what we call dramatic irony. Yeah. Because we have all grown up with well, those of us who grew up in the church, we have grown up with these stories of Jesus rising from the dead so that we may all be saved despite the the stupid and ignorant and insensitive things we do, despite all of the times that we don't share our wealth of talent, time, or treasure, uh, all of these things we can still be forgiven. And this is how we cross that chasm from the darkness to the light. 
but so often we are unwilling or unable to step out of the darkness that we know for the light that we do not understand. Yeah. That's deep. Thank you. (laughs) If I didn't want to open up a, a huge can of worms, I would tell you why I'm thinking about all that, but it's, it's family stuff and we'll just leave it there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and I try to reserve complimenting you in such a way because I know you're going to let it go to your head. Uh, so, <laughs> so on that note, I think it's time for us to start wrapping up here. Mm-hmm. The practice that I am recommending this week is the practice of generosity. A lot of people see generosity as being some sort of character trait or personal quality, but Really, generosity is a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual discipline that scripture calls us to learn how to do. This is not something that we are all innately born with. Some people do it better than others, but all of us need to practice generosity as part of our spiritual life. And so this week, I encourage you to practice radical generosity in some way. This means give up something that hurts to part ways with. This might be money, this might be time, this might be talent, but part ways with something important to you. This might mean giving two or three times as much at church on Sunday as you normally do. Or if you haven't given for a long time, possibly more than that. It's uh, getting onto stewardship season, so this is the forefront of my mind here. Uh, But maybe it's giving up a beloved item that someone else needs more than you do. Um, Something like, you know, do you have five great coats? Give four of them away to people who have no great coats, that sort of thing. Um, If you feel like you're just too busy to donate your time to a local organization that is out doing God's work in the world, then find time anyway. Because that is to be one of our priorities, is bringing God's kingdom to earth. Amen. So, let let us pray. God of grace and mercy, help us to see all the blessings in our lives, all the treasures we hold in love and spirit, in health and wealth, in intellect and strength. Help us, O God, to see as Jesus sees to see the poor around us. Help us to see all the different kinds of poverty and help us to see the great chasm that separates us from the poor in our midst. Then help us to step into the breach and share our wealth with all who are in need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, may God, the God who takes everything holy and whole, Make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body. May God encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. Thank you, friends, for sticking with us for yet another episode of Soft Idolatry. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments or you find something missing in the show notes that you really want the link to, please feel free to email us at info at softidolatry.com. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Patreon, or to get our show notes and blog, you can join us at www.softidolatry.com. 